Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. Hey pals, before we jump into this episode, I'm so excited to let you know that today's episode is actually being brought to you in partner with Anato. I am beyond excited to share Anato with you all because it's something I am so passionate about and use literally every day. Anato is a regenerative lifestyle brand that's based in Santa Cruz and offers skincare and workshops and so many other resources. It uses renewable resources to create their fantastic skincare products that you can feel so good about using because they're all about sustainability and even further than that, regeneration of our planet. The packaging is phenomenal, probably my favorite skincare packaging I have ever used or seen, and it's all zero waste and so easy to use. I stand by their products 100% because I love them so much and I use them every single day, and I am not a big skincare person, at least I wasn't until I started using Anato because I love it. My personal favorites are the Tree Balm Rescue and Relief, which is always in my bag or in my pocket, easy to grab because I use it so often, and the Kelp Forest Face Mask, which quickly became a necessity in my weekly self-care nights. Because Anato is so amazing and I love water women so much, they are giving us a code, a special code to get 20, yes, 20% off your purchase from them. You can get this purchase on all their best sellers by using code WATERWOMEN when you're purchasing your new favorite regenerative skincare at anatolife.com. That is A-N-A-T-O-L-I-F-E.com and using code WATERWOMEN, W-A-T-E-R, W-O-M-E-N. I cannot wait for you guys to, to try out Anato because I know you'll fall in love with it as fast as I did. Welcome to the Water Room Podcast. I am super excited to have you on today. I love getting to chat with my friends on the podcast and people I know. So I'll get you to start out by introducing yourself with your name and your pronouns and a little bit about what you do. Sure. Thanks, Jill. Uh, so my name is Gina Lenati, and I go by she, her. And I am a PhD student at the University of New Brunswick, St. John, and I am studying the health of whales in Atlantic Canada for my PhD research. So potentially one of the coolest PhDs you could do, obviously, on whales. <laughs> I'm, uh, I mean, if you're not being biased, of course, yes. <laughs> Definitely not biased at all here. <laughs> so when did you fall in love with the ocean? Like, what about you makes you a water woman or part of the marine community? Uh, yeah, I, I love how you phrase that question, first of all. Um, so I've known since I was a little girl, as I'm sure a lot of young aspiring marine biologists out there have, that I loved the ocean. I was always outside. I, I think in growing up in New Jersey, USA, I was often outside like collecting bugs and, you know, looking at animals in my backyard and then remember going to every aquarium that we could find when I, my family and I were on vacation and just, you know, wanting to spend hours looking at the fish and being able to name them all 
And then we would take trips to the Jersey Shore or see my uh, family out in California and go to SeaWorld. And that's where I really fell in love with marine mammals. Uh, I remember watching the dolphin trainers and the relationships they had with the dolphins and just being very curious and fascinated with that as a child. And I was very fortunate to have a strong relationship with my grandfather, who was a dentist, but did some research um, in the field of dentistry. And he really mentored me as a kid. He would bring me science articles and like riddles and puzzle books. And I just became fascinated with science and math. And that just carried into my career today. So very thankful for the influence he and my family had on me as a young kid. I love that you brought up the aquarium because that was me. Like mm-hmm. everywhere as we traveled as a kid, my parents would be like, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I saw a sign for an aquarium. Can we go there? And they were like, oh my God, like it's the same fish. And I'm like, yeah, but it's a different fish. Like yeah. Yeah. it might be the same species, but it's a different one. Like I need to see it. Right. Right. And, and like the touch tanks and nice. yes, I just, I could stare for hours. Like people watch TV. I could just sit and watch an aquarium for hours. I definitely was that kid growing up at the touch tank that like my mom would bring like an extra change of clothes because I was basically like in the touch tank. Like (laughs) I wanted to know and learn everything. Right. Like, oh, oops, I just fell in. in. (laughs) Sorry, just leave me here. It's fine. Right. (laughs) I also love that marine mammals stuck out to you at like SeaWorld, like you said. And like just Mm -hmm. I feel like when it comes to marine mammals, I feel like that's the starting point for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. which kind of opens up some like interesting conversations. Cause obviously like you learn more about it and you're like, Hmm, sea world. Yes. <laughs> so like would I be where I am without sea world? Exactly. Yes. And, and I've worked with a lot of veterinarians and researchers and biologists at sea world. And I will say they're some of the most passionate and dedicated people I've had the privilege of working with. Um, and they do a lot of great uh, rehabilitation of stranded animals and, so much of what we know about killer whales and beluga whales and bottlenose dolphins comes from the research we've been able to do on captive animals. And while there are concerns about the um, safety, of the well-being of the whales, um, there is also a lot we can learn from these animals. And yeah, it can be a, a very controversial situation depending on who you're talking to. Um, but yes, it w- played a huge part in me wanting to become a marine biologist, and I'm sure a lot of other people. Yeah. So after you decided you wanted to be a marine biologist, where did you go to school? What did you do? Did you ever like through your undergrad kind of feel like, mm, this is maybe not what I want to do? Or was it always like, heck yeah, this is it? <laughs> yeah. So I, um, when I was looking at going to college, I tried to narrow the search down by programs that had marine uh, courses in marine biology and wound up going to Bowdoin College, which is a small liberal arts school in Maine. And while they don't have a marine biology uh, program, they have a coastal study center, which just kind of drew me in and, and the rocky intertidal coastline was just, you know, it's beautiful. And, and being in Atlanta, Canada, you can, you kind of know what that's like, but it was just mesmerizing coming from, you know, the beaches of New Jersey. And, um, through my college years, I took a lot of biology classes, but I 
also because Bowdoin was liberal arts, I dabbled in poetry and philosophy and arts. And, you know, I, while I did like those other subjects, I just kept getting called back to biology. It was just always my favorite. I loved the labs. We got to like dig around in the mud for clams. And I just remember that was just so cool. Um, and there was a point where I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian, specifically a marine vet. Classic. Yes, Classic I feel thought. like a lot of people go through that, right? And yes. I think it's because we have this idea that the only way I'll work hands-on with animals is if I'm a vet. Yes, um, and I Yeah, because you see you know, the shows and, and at SeaWorld, you're just imagining either being a trainer or being a veterinarian. And I really liked the research. So... I did an internship in after my sophomore year at Bowdoin. I interned with the New England Aquarium and worked with rescued sea turtles. So we would do rehab on sea turtles. You, like some of them had muscular issues, so you'd like rotate their flippers for them, and we would feed them medications. They were basically uh, turtles that had gotten cold stunned, or had stranded, or injured, or entangled. And the goal was to release them back to the wild. And I was able to shadow uh, the New England Aquarium's vet. And, you know, we did a turtle colonoscopy, which was crazy to watch. Um, But what I found was more so than, you know, doing the physical therapy and administering medications, I was like, why does this turtle like to eat crabs while this one likes herring? Or... I was like, why, how are they able to hold their breath for so long? I found myself asking questions that weren't necessarily medical or vet based that were more just like, how do these animals operate? And that's where I said, maybe, you know, a research based graduate program is more for me than this veterinarian track. Mm. Uh, Yeah. I like that. I love the idea of like asking questions and I've said it before. I'll say it a million times again. The second you start asking questions, that's what makes you a scientist. Like wanting to understand something, you're a scientist. That's it. Right. Right. I love that. Yes. And anyone can do it. Anyone can do science if you're curious. Yes. Absolutely. So Mm -hmm. you decided you wanted kind of to take this research track. What came next? Where did that take you? Right. So uh, I applied for graduate school, a master's program at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. And so pretty much as soon as I graduated from undergrad, I, I actually did a quick internship in uh, Florida doing dolphin photo identification surveys and wow. then went off to graduate school at UNCW and did a two-year program there where I was studying the lipid chemistry of toothed whales. So I'll break break that down. So (laughs) lipids meaning fats. So toothed whales have a lot of blubber. Most marine mammals have very thick blubber layers. But also toothed whales have these specialized fats in their heads that they use for echolocation. So when they make the little sounds, like dolphins use echolocation to find their way underwater, the sound is actually propagated through these fats. And on the head, it's called the melon. And in their jaws, it's called the mandibular fats. And it creates this kind of funnel for the sound for echolocation. And so we were doing some studies on those fats in animals that had stranded and died 
Um, and we were also looking at the nitrogen solubility in those fats and how that might play, the fats might play a role in these animals' uh, susceptibility to the bends or decompression injuries similar to scuba divers. That is such a cool project. The fact that <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> it's definitely not something like when you're like, yeah, I study whales. Like people are probably thinking like, oh, like cool, like their behaviors or like identification. <laughs> and you're like, no, no, no. Like they're fats, like they're they're mm-hmm. blubber, the comp- yep. composition of it. Like that is so cool. So thank you. You used, you said deceased animals. Like what were you doing like on a day to day? How did you do this? Right. So yes, like you're saying, people think, oh, you work with whales, it's very glamorous, you get to like swim with them. It's like, no, (laughs) there was none of that. Um, It was a lot of lab work. So my advisor had a bunch of um, pre-collected fats frozen in a big chest freezer, and I would thaw them out and then sample them and run them, run analyses on those fats. Um, But then when an animal off the coast of North Carolina would die, we would bring it to our lab and do a dissection. And um, another uh, lab at UNCW was um, doing what's called a necropsy, which is like a non-human animal autopsy. So where you're trying to figure out the cause of death of the animal. And at the same time, I was able to collect additional fats from these animals for my research. And that's where I got into like fascinated with dead things, which sounds so morbid, but (laughs) you can learn so much from dead animals. Um, and that's where it kind of opened my eyes to how cool that could be. Although I will say like the first few necropsies I ever did, I was like, I am never doing this again. So it certainly had to grow on me. It wasn't like instantly, a passion of mine. But as I started to get more and more into the project, I was like, oh, wow, there's so much to be learned from these animals. I love taking this, like the death of an animal, which is this like inherently sad thing and kind of flipping it and being like, okay, we can use Mm -hmm. this for something. Like this can teach us. We could like give it a purpose almost. Like it is always going to be sad when you have an animal that passes away or see an animal that's passed away, but like take something good from it, learn something, see how we can prevent this in the future or just learn something from them. So I love that you're kind of flipping that and it helped you see that. Right. And it just also like further uh, sparked my curiosity because, you know, you're seeing these animals that most of us only see pictures. A handful Mm -hmm. of us might, you know, see one on a whale watch or, you know, have a close encounter while you're kayaking. But to see these animals so up close, it's both tragic and sad, but also just like, you know, this animal dived really deeply and saw things that we will never see. And its heart, you know, so well adapted for that underwater life. And I just became obsessed with the physiology of these animals. And my mentors and advisor at at UNCW, Dr. Heather Koopman and Dr. Ann Papps, they were just wonderful mentors and and inspired me to really... uh, latch on to this what can be learned from dead animals and physiology it's so cool and the first time you see a whale like it's one thing to see a whale like from a boat or like a kayak Mm -hmm. like you said or like even just from shore watching like you're like wow that's a big animal the first time Mm -hmm. you see a whale like on a shore like beached Mm -hmm. it's like you're like that's a big animal it's unbelievable yes I had the privilege of responding 
I say privilege, I mean, some people would not consider it a privilege, um, to respond to a dead, large baleen whale, and I'll identify in it shortly, uh, off the, the southwest coast of Florida near the Everglades. Um, and it had just recently passed away. And so we towed it to the boat ramp and it took hours to coordinate the towing. And, you know, you get there and it's just the size of the baleen and just its eye. And then, you know, you have to cut it and you're holding the lungs with like three people have to hold them. And you're having to like, you know, sit inside the animal to get access (laughs) to the organs. It's, it's really, you know, the sheer size of these animals is just so impressive. So the reason I didn't mention the species of that whale was because at first we thought it was a Brutus whale, which were known to kind of be in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, There was considered a small population there, but just recent genetic analyses of both the whale we collected and a couple other specimens and also investigating the skeleton of the whale that we um, necropsied, were able to determine that it was actually a, a new species of whale. Um, no. It's called the rice's whale. And so I think that's the closest I'll get to like discovering a new species. And it was just so cool to be, you know, even just a small part of describing the coloration of the whale on the outside and, and, you know, the consistency uh, or like it's, it's stomach chambers. And uh, sadly that whale had a small piece of plastic in its stomach and created an ulcer that um, probably made it very painful to eat. And so it passed away and, and drowned um, was the ultimate cause of death. So it's just, it was a piece of plastic, you know, um, probably the size of my hand. Something and that to you think wouldn't that even that could, think twice about seeing. Right, right. And just, you know, again, hammering home the impact we have on these whales, these huge animals, you know, the small thing that can lead to their demise it's absolutely crazy to think like a piece of plastic the size of your hands like literally a starbucks cup Mm. would be the end of this like 30 foot whale right right and especially the rice's whale i mean there we don't know how many are out there it's probably a very small subpopulation and already the gulf of mexico had the the oil spill the deep water horizon oil spill so these whales are probably under a lot of stress and to begin with, yeah. Yes. So just for one to succumb to a piece of plastic is just very sad. It's so funny that you mentioned like Florida here because when I think of whales, I and like where to see them, genuinely Florida is one of the last places I think of. Like I really never go to Florida and think like, yeah, I'm gonna see a whale, which mm. is so weird because you like it is basically an island. a lot of water. <laughs> like, yeah, right. <laughs> Like, you'd think that that would be my first thought there. But when I think of, like, where I want to go whale watching, I'm like, mm, Florida? No way. There's no whales there. <laughs> like, what? Does not make sense to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure why that uh, that is. But, uh, I mean, Florida, it's, maybe it's a little hot. <laughs> I would, if you're not good with the heat, then maybe whale watch elsewhere. Like, Massachusetts is a good uh, place. Cape Cod Bay is a good place for whale watching. But, yeah. Yeah, but the the reason I was in Florida for that whale necropsy was because after my master's, I worked for Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, and 
um, my main responsibility there was being a stranding biologist. So responding to live and dead marine mammals that were stranded along the coast. And that mostly involved manatees. So if you don't think of, when you think of Florida, if you don't think of whales, hopefully think of manatees. (laughs) I definitely think of manatees. Yes. Okay. When I think of Florida, that's what I think of. Yes. Yes. There are certainly uh, lots of manatees to be seen, especially in the winter time. They like to aggregate around warm water sites and it's a great, it's easy. They're, you know, right along the coast. So easy to spot them and they're very gentle, slow moving animals. So unfortunately that means that people like to take advantage and go harass them or Mm -hmm. surround them or hug them, but they are also great animals to just observe passively and uh, appreciate how, you know, how they just live life a little more slowly. (laughs) They're so cool. Now, when you were telling me about when you were working with the fish and wildlife down there, you Mm -hmm. mentioned something about aging manatees, which Mm -hmm. literally blew my mind. So how would you age a manatee? Right. So, um, so with a lot of marine mammals, um, or a lot of just mammals in general, you can collect certain tissues after the animal dies. And then, um, periodically the animals deposit these growth layers in tissues. So usually this is bone, but there are other soft tissues like uh, whale earplugs, like the earwax in their auditory canal can be aged as well. But uh, for manatees, we collect their ear bones. Um, and so they're about the size, they could fit in your palm, all the bones together, but there's a specific portion that will break off from the rest of the ear bone complex and then cross section. And similar to counting rings on a tree, you can count these growth layer groups that are deposited roughly annually. And so we, when manatee passed away and we recovered the body, we do the necropsy to determine cause of death, but then also collect these samples, including the ear bones, and get um, an age estimate by cross-sectioning those bones. That is so cool. <laughs> Thank you. That is not how I would ever guess that you would age a manatee. Right. Well, I will say that photo identification is another important way that we know how old manatees are. So sadly, with manatees, the way we photo identify them mostly is by scars on their back that are caused by watercraft collisions. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I was also just recently on a paper that came out, Bassett et al. 2020, that um, looked at how frequently manatees are hit by boats based on scar patterns on carcasses, uh, backs and like adults can be hit. I think one of them was hit over 40 times in its life. And, you know, there's rarely a juvenile that survives into adulthood that hasn't been hit at least once. Um, so, uh, yeah, so photo identification uses those scar patterns on the backs of manatees to identify individuals. Um, but And so that's a great way to, you know, understand, not a great way, but it's the way that um, we can track individuals over time and say, oh, wow, we saw this individual in the 1980s and we're just seeing it again today. So it's uh, getting old versus the ear bones. Um, there are some errors associated with yeah. aging the ear bones because manatees will reabsorb calcium 
uh, as they get older and it makes the growth layers a lot harder to interpret. But uh, yeah, it was a pretty neat project to, you know, try to get estimates of these manatees ages and see how old they can get in the wild. It's definitely one of those like double-edged swords with the scars because it does make like identification so easy. If you see an animal like manatee or a whale with like this huge prominent scar, you're like, oh, obviously that's so-and-so. But then Mm -hmm. you're like, "Mm, how did you get that scar? I'm so sorry that that happened. Right. Yes, exactly. A little heartbreaking, but also a little convenient, you know? Right. It just shows like how, you know, the science, I guess, you know, the impacts we have on these animals are so obvious and sometimes as a scientist you're like researching a whale and you're using photo id and you're like you start to think about like you said how that individual got that scar and how we're now using it to do research it's like this whole it's a weird um one of those things you can't think about too much otherwise your brain starts to hurt yes yes but good to think about, good for people who have never thought about it to think about it as well. It's just like the impacts we're having on animals the, in so many different ways. The big impacts that you don't really think about too often. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So after you were finished working with the wildlife in Florida, what made you want to start your PhD up here in Canada? Because I feel like that's a little bit of a switch. In, <laughs> it is. Uh, people think I'm crazy. Yes. I, I do think you are. Yes. I, I mean, I, I have those days where I think I am too, but uh, all, all for good reasons. So um, I, it was during my master's that I really, again, fell in love with research and said, you know, this is for me. I love academia. I love, you know, we were talking earlier about asking questions. And I feel like, you know, my family has always asked me a lot of questions about my interests. And in turn, I've learned to ask a lot of questions of other people and, and the things around me. And I love the setting of academia and that everyone's working on such cool projects. And there's this, you know, camaraderie and intensity and sharing and collaboration. And I just love all the dynamics of that. I love staying busy. And I love learning what else people are working on. Like I love in my program that, you know, I have friends working on seabirds, on salmon, on whelks, like all sorts of things. And I get to learn about that just by, you know, being friends with the people in my program. So that's really neat. And so, and I, as much as I loved my job at Florida Fish and Wildlife, um, I missed that, you know, leading a research program, asking questions and collecting data for my own project. So I, uh, I started looking for PhD programs while I was there. And I am a member of the MARMAM listserv. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but any marine mammal, aspiring marine mammal biologist, or even if you are one, it's a great email list to be a part of for new jobs, uh, internships, new publications, or just people asking questions. Absolutely. If it's, if you're someone listening who's into marine mammals, I cannot recommend it enough. I've learned so much just by like getting the emails and like seeing these opportunities and I'm like, oh, that's so cool. Like it's definitely something to check out. So when I was a stranding biologist at FWC, I attended a conference, it was in 2017, in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and it was the 
biennial marine mammal conference. So every two years, the Society of Marine Mammalogy puts on this big conference where all the people working in marine mammals kind of come together and share knowledge. And it's this awesome venue for for seeing your friends and old colleagues, uh, yeah. but also sharing information. And so 2017 happened to be a particularly bad year for the North Atlantic right whales. Uh, there were was a huge spike in mortalities, and uh, there were no births of calves that following winter. And at this conference, the um, the people working with North Atlantic right whales gave some very poignant lectures and, and presentations about how dire the situation with North Atlantic right whales was, and. I remember sitting in the audience and knowing I wanted to return to academia and not never having worked with right whales, but of course being really fascinated by whales and said, what I said to myself, what better way to like dedicate the next several years and potentially my future career than to these animals that really need our help right now. And it just seemed like the right cause, the right calling, the right timing. And so in the back of my mind, when I was searching for PhD programs, I was looking for something that could, um, could involve studying right whales. And around the same time, fortuitously, I connected with a well-known researcher at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. His name is Dr. Michael Moore, and he's done a lot of brilliant work with with whales he's also a veterinarian so um he's got the the medical perspective as well on these animals and he was starting to use drones with thermal imaging cameras to study north atlantic right whales and he he gave me some papers to read and he was telling me about his methods and i like was hooked i was like this is the coolest thing i want to know everything about it i want to do this and so when I saw on that Marmam listserv that Dr. Kim Davies at the University of New Brunswick, St. John, was looking for a PhD student to study whales, uh, North Atlantic great whales, as well as their feeding habitats, I, I contacted her and said, Kim, uh, would you be willing to take a student who also wants to do some drone research in relation to whales and their feeding habitats? And that's kind of how I've found myself here now. <laughs> that is so cool. It's so funny how things work out sometimes. Like you yes. made that decision to go to that conference and now here you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like just that quickly. Right, right. It just kind of fell into place and people were like, oh, Canada. But I was like, you know, um, it's... It's the right whale's backyard in the summer months. That's when mm-hmm. they're feeding is in Atlantic Canada. So it was great access to the animals. Um, Dr. Davies has also put together this great collaborative team of researchers that go out into the Gulf of St. Lawrence and the Bay of Fundy each year. And she just has a lot of uh, colleagues and uh, it's been great to become integrated into this right whale family. I love that. That's definitely the right phrase for it, the family, because it's such a small niche project that it's a big family for sure. Right, right. Everyone's like focused on the same goal. Right. Well, we morbidly joke that there are more people studying North Atlantic right whales than there are North Atlantic right whales. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. But um, 
Yeah, the current population estimate of the last as of the end of 2019 was 356 individuals, and that's going to be updated um, again. You know, in, it's here soon, but um, that's just it's very sad. So, at this, uh, what I also really love about this family is while we know our work is urgent it's also I'll reach out to someone and say, Hey, I'm, I'm working with right whales. Are you willing to share some of your time? And can I pick your brain about this topic? And they're immediately like, yes, anything for the right whales. Yes. absolutely. Yeah. People have been really, they've been really open sharing. And I think that's such a wonderful thing to have in a community of scientists is like, it's really unhealthy when people are like, no, you can't see my data because it's mine or I'm going to publish it first. It's like, we all know that if we were like that, nothing would progress for the right whales and they'd go extinct before our own eyes. So um, it's great to work with people who are on the same page and are like, we need to work together to solve this problem. Yeah, absolutely. So what is it about right whales that make them so important? And why is their um, conservation so important to you and to people who might not, in air quotes, like care about these whales (laughs) that they don't see every day? Like what makes them so vital to us? Right. And, And it can kind of be said about any whale or even any obscure animal that maybe people haven't heard of or haven't ever seen is like, why do we care if this one species goes extinct? I mean, there are plenty other whales, there are plenty other, you know, marine, big marine animals. But I think one of the most important findings that happened probably in the last couple decades is that whales actually are very important in their ecosystems because they cycle nutrients. Um, Whales eat a lot of food and they poop a lot. And that poop like is very important for the productivity of their ecosystems. And so it helps cycle nutrients from, you know, the depths to the surface waters. And um, so in that regard, they're very important. Also, when a whale dies, you know, naturally, hopefully, and it sinks to the bottom, it's also a ton of food for benthic or bottom dwelling organisms. And so, you know, removing a whole population of whales from an area, I can't even begin to like imagine what the what the impacts on the ecosystem are like. It's probably very complicated. Yeah, um, one of those so like, that's, chain reactions that we don't really fully understand yet because it hasn't happened, and I never want to find out what happened. Exactly, exactly. It's very hard to to model or predict what will happen if we remove a whole species from an environment. Yeah. But the the other um, perspective on it is we know what is killing North Atlantic right whales. We know yeah. that the leading threats are entanglements in fishing gear and collisions with vessels, as well as impacts from climate change, which is changing the distribution quality and quantity of their plankton prey. And, you know, those, those issues, those threats are in our control. Like we, we've identified them. We're, you know, working with the fishing and shipping industries, which I also don't want to put blame on them because, these people make their livelihoods in in the ways that they've that they know, and they are working with us. We actually, the, a lot of the research we do is 
using it's chartering a fishing vessel and so they're very invested in finding a solution as well yeah but it's just um thinking that you know these whales they're north atlantic right whales largely inhabit waters off of the united states of the east coast of the u.s and atlantic canada and if the u.s and canada can't come together and solve this like it's doesn't bode well for all the other whale species around the world um that are more poorly studied. Um, you know, there's so much research going into these animals. Like I said, we know what's killing them. And if we can't solve this, like, I don't know, it's just very, very sad and tragic to think that they could go extinct in our lifetime. Yeah. 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 It's hard to know that an animal's dying out in general, but it's even harder when you're like, we know the cause of this. And mm-hmm. as a singular person, there's not much I can do. And definitely not to put any blame on the fishing community because they do make their livelihood. And it's one of those things that individual fishermen are going to be like, yeah, absolutely. Like we want to help save these whales. What can we do? It's just the the product of a whole of like years and years of lost lines that you Mm -hmm. might not think twice about, but are now wrapped around a whale's tail. And like, Mm -hmm. it's not anything recent. It's just years and years of the same practices happening and like little, little missing ropes or like, things that don't seem like a big deal adding up. Right. And so one of the biggest, I think one of the most important lines of research with North Atlantic right whales these days is ropeless fishing gear. Yes. Um, So while, yes, we can fish less and fish at certain times of the year instead of the times when the whales are there, there's still going to be line in the water. There's still going to be whales around, not just North Atlantic right whales, but certainly other species. Yes. Um, there's still going to be ships, but ropeless fishing gear is the idea where uh, the fishing boat can ping uh, a trap that's on the bottom of the ocean and it would deploy a buoy in that instant where you could haul in the gear. And so there's no line that that's floating in the mid water column. So it eliminates the whale rope interaction to begin with. And um, I just think that that's such a huge um, development and could really be groundbreaking. And a lot, I again want to emphasize that so many fishermen have been supporting this research and go, they're the ones testing these new technologies and and working with us because the scientists, you know, we tend to be like, you know, shut it all down or, or stop fishing, but they, they have the on water experience and know what technology works best and what they see. So it's really valuable to have their perspective on what gear is, is also safe for humans. Um, because ultimately we don't want someone to get injured from, you know, a new technology, um, that you know is meant to save a whale but then Hurts makes the it humans, more difficult yeah. for people so yeah it's this compromise and I will say it's it's been so fascinating sitting in on these conversations with these different stakeholders and I've learned a lot about how we can't know everything but it's we have so we have to work together like yeah it kind of like together. me in the middle kind of thing here mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like you know with a little education people can start to see how we can coexist. Like it is possible. We just need to be creative and compromise a little bit. Yeah, um, absolutely. And like, yeah, learn to see the other side. Like, yes, yes. Yeah, like, like definitely we are prone. You mentioned as scientists to be like, shut it down. We don't need these fisheries. That's just hurting us. But then it's also right. Like, 
you shut that down, people lose their livelihood. People aren't exactly people. like it, it. You can't just shut it down. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I, yeah, it's important to have that balance. And that's why, again, teamwork is so important in science. Back to your PhD a little bit. Like, yes. What okay. is your day to day? Like I know lately, like today you said you were out flying drones. What the heck are you doing on a day to day? Because that sounds so cool. Right. Well, since COVID, things have looked a little different. But yes. um, again, some of it's not glamorous. I spend a lot of time on the computer, um, on Zoom and Microsoft Teams meetings, and just kind of planning the research. I'd say for every month we do of research in the field, it's like triple or quadruple the amount of time for planning. And so, yes, so a lot of answering emails, a lot of purchasing equipment, a lot of testing that equipment, and a lot of, you know, writing, I guess, yeah. and planning. Uh, but the fun part, the few months out of the year where we get to go into the field is is the exciting part, the, the part we all live for, I guess. <laughs> and um, yeah, so we have a research drone, an aerial drone that I fly over the whales. And that is, it's important that we test all that equipment and make sure, you know, everything's working, it's safe. So today, for example, we just flew the drone and um, our lab technician and, and my advisor were hand catching and launching the drone as we would on the boat. So we were just training and making sure that we're all comfortable, you know, catching the drone out of the air, which can be <laughs> exciting. <laughs> um, so there's some of that. We were also conducting an experiment where we created our own whale <laughs> out of a, like a kid's raft. And we had two thermoses full with hot water. And those were meant to be the blowholes of the whale when it comes to the surface. Cool. And we were using our drone with its thermal camera and flying over this mock whale and by knowing the temperature of the water in the blowholes, we could compare that to the temperature recorded by the drone's thermal camera and see what our accuracy is. And we were testing that under different wind conditions and different humidity and air temperatures. So we can kind of see what our accuracy is going to be like when we're over an actual whale. Uh, so there's a lot of that to do in the spring and the fall when the weather is nice for drone flying. Yeah, I guess um, right now you're kind of in the middle too, where it's not exactly like whale season yet. Like they're not here just yet. Uh, yeah, well, so they're, the North Atlantic right whales are actually um, in the Gulf of St. Lawrence currently. There's been quite a few sightings now. Oh, cool. I think the first sighting was uh, in ooh, end of March. It was early this year. Don't quote me on that. It was early <laughs> this year. So anyway, they are in Canada. And we're actually leaving for our field season July 5th. So cool. That's um, yeah, it's like three and a half weeks, which seems so close. But uh, yeah, so and then besides testing our drone and, you know, doing a lot of computer work, um, it's also, I'm also analyzing data that we collected last summer. So we did fly our drone over humpback whales. And so I'm looking through thermal videos as well as RGB or visible spectrum photos that we got of the whales and uh, kind of exploring the data we collected to see, uh, you know, what we can determine from the thermal images. One of the 
main objectives of my research is to measure the temperature of whale blowholes. Okay, cool. Yes. Why? (laughs) Yeah. Um, First, because we don't know what it is. (laughs) Like, (laughs) we don't know how hot a whale gets. Um, We assume that they, you know, they have a, a static... Uh, temp- internal body temperature like we do and that it would be close to other large land-dwelling mammals but we really don't know for sure until we kind of look and the reason we're looking into the blowholes rather than the whale's back is because the blowholes provide this kind of window into the whale um, it's kind of like you put a thermometer under your tongue versus one of those contactless thermometers you point at yeah. your forehead. Sometimes it, you feel like you're, you must not be alive because your temperature is so cold when you have the, it pointed at your forehead, but your tongue is much more accurate. So it's kind of like that. Um, and we're also, we're using the thermal camera to measure those blowhole temperatures, but we also have an RGB or visible spectrum camera on the drone that is collecting full body images of the whales. And we are able, knowing the altitude of our drone, when the images are captured, we are able to derive measurements of the whales from those photos. So we can tell how long it is and how wide it is. And using that ratio of length to width, we can tell how robust, how fat or, or, (laughs) or emaciated it is. So we can compare among whales and go, oh, wow, that whale's super fat and robust, or this whale is really skinny given they both whales are the same length. And so um, using those two data streams, if we compare them, we're kind of curious, does a skinny whale have a different blowhole temperature than a fat whale? Could a whale get a fever if it's injured or entangled? Or would it be colder because it has less blubber if it's skinny and therefore is losing more heat to the environment? So these are this is very exploratory and we're, we're asking all these different questions. And um, that's why it's exciting to review some of these videos and see what answers we find. That is so cool. And not a question <laughs> I would have ever really thought to ask. But oh right. man, that is unreal. <laughs> Thank you. Like, can whales get sick? Well, let's figure it out. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah, it's like a flying, it's almost like being a flying veterinarian. Like, <laughs> there's a paper I was reading recently called uh, Dr. Drone, or it was, you know, saying how drones could be the new perspective for uh, for health assessments on whales. You know, a dolphin or a seal you can easily catch and not maybe not so easily, but you can catch and, you know, take its temperature. Uh, you can measure its heart rate. You can um, do ultrasound to determine how thick its blubber is. But with a whale, you obviously can't catch it and bring it to shore and like do all these studies. So we have to find new ways and, and drones. What's exciting about them is they're less invasive than close approaches by boats or even, you know, low, they have higher resolution than yeah. plane-based um, operations. So it's this really cool perspective where we can start to get some of those health metrics that we can't normally get from a large whale. That is so cool to be able to like learn this much about whale using a drone. I love right. that. Right. It's Yeah. There's so much you can get from one flight. 
I remember last summer I saw you guys out on the boat one day because I was working out on the boat and I was like oh, cool. I was like oh my god guys everyone like look at this boat over here here's what they're doing I was like giving like, a basic rundown obviously I didn't know everything but I was like they're using drones to do this and they're, you know them I was like yeah. yeah I felt so proud I was like this is they're so cool guys oh thanks <laughs> it was so cool to like see it in action though and like know the whale that you guys were looking at that day and I was like hey guys like I'm going to be able to know this whale and like know that this is the one they were looking at. And it was so cool. It's like heartwarming to know that it's like inspiring other people too. <laughs> well, I remember people on the boat too were like asking me questions about this. I was like, okay, I'm going to do the best to answer it given what I know. Cause I had like talked to Kim for the podcast and like obviously Kim right. had been my prof. And like, I remember mm-hmm. when she taught her our first class, I like went up to her and I was like, I think you were the coolest person I've ever met already. Aww. And she was like, oh, yeah. thank you. And I was like, I would like to hear more about it. Thank you very much. Yes. And so nice. like, I had a basic understanding and I like loved telling people, I was like, yeah, they're using drones to study whales. And they were like, you mm-hmm. can do that. And I was like, can <gasps> you ever? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny. I always say people, when I say drones, people think, oh, like, robots meant to spy on us but drones (laughs) are being used for so many cool things like they're putting out fires they're you know being filled with hands like sanitizing um solution and then you know they can spray large areas like stadiums and things and um they can deploy buoyant buoyancy devices bfds to drowning victims like the the possibilities are just uh you know, limited by our imagination at this point. Yeah, it's so, they're really this like catch-all device that can do so many different Mm -hmm. things and to use Mm -hmm. them to further our understanding of different things is so cool. Right, right, yes. So, so I agree. (laughs) I love it. So knowing Kim and knowing your project, we have talked a lot about the physiology of it. Are you incorporating any oceanography into it as well? Yes, so in addition to studying whales from the, the sky. We're also looking at whales from underwater. So we're studying the tiny plankton that North Atlantic right whales feed on. And these plankton are called copepods. And they're about the size of a grain of rice. And whales eat large amounts of them to sustain themselves. And we are using new and existing oceanographic sampling equipment to understand the quality, quantity, and distribution of copepods in the Bay of Fundy, as well as the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And uh, by understanding the distribution of these uh, copepods, we might be able to predict where the whales are going to be and thereby um, inform management uh, decisions that can prevent further whales from being entangled or hit by vessels. So that's one of the goals of some of the oceanography that we do. Cool. Oceanography has always been kind of like a, not mystery to me, but (laughs) definitely I have a much more like physiological brain and like understanding like the biology of how it works. So oceanography for me has always been kind of one of those, like, I respect you so much. I do not understand you. But it's, it's really been cool to learn what else is what other work Kim is working on and, and other students in our lab. We have students working with oceanographic gliders, which are these kind of underwater airplanes or drones that can be programmed to profile the water for months in a very vast area. And they have these microphones or hydrophones that can listen for whale calls in addition to 
um, like a sonar system that can estimate the abundance of plankton in the water as they're these these um, gliders are traveling by. And then also we just our lab just became part of the Smart Whales Initiative, which is through the Canada Space Agency, where we'll be contributing contributing drone imagery to uh, artificial intelligence uh, algorithms that can detect whales using satellite imagery. That was another thing I wanted to mention. Um, So the satellites are passing over these vast areas of oceans that are very hard for us to get boats out to, or even the drone. I mean, our drone's battery life is, you know, 20 to 30 minutes, so we're not going to travel very far with it. But the satellites can profile much more ocean. And the thought is that using satellite imagery, we might be able to say, whoa, there's a right whale over here. And we didn't know that they went to this part of the ocean. Or there's one right here, and that's in the middle of a shipping lane. And so maybe we should inform all the vessel captains to slow down. Um, So that's a lot of the themes in our lab are contributing, a lot of the research is contributing to management decisions and trying to minimize the risks of entanglement and ship strike. So if you did notice that a whale was kind of like in the lanes, like how would you communicate that to these vessel operators? Would it be like an immediate thing, like via radio, or is it kind of like a, hey, just so you know, there's a whale around this area kind of thing? For the satellites or for the um, the gliders? Either or, whichever, like both. Okay. Really. The, the satellite work is still in its infant stages, we there's still we haven't developed the full notification system yet, but the gliders. Um, so when a glider hears a whale, it requires some. It kind of automatically pings um, the researchers, and then someone has to go in and and manually validate and make sure it didn't falsely detect a whale. And you can actually distinguish species based on their calls. So you can detect a right whale versus a blue whale versus a humpback whale, which is pretty cool. So someone goes in and says, okay, yes, this is a right whale's call. And they will then, you know, usually it's within 24, 48 hours. Again, I'm not directly involved in it. So other people are doing this, but it is pretty near real time. And then uh, Transport Canada would issue a notice to seamen, um, and they would all be on the lookout for whales and, and slow down if possible and safe to do so. That is mm-hmm. so cool. It's kind of mm-hmm. it's really cool to see like applications of your work like in the real world in pretty like real time. Yes, that is one thing I love about the research that's going on at the Davies Lab is that it's while we're you know pushing some of these boundaries of what we can do with new technology and the answer, the questions we can ask with the new technology. We're also really um, feeding or, or applying what we find to actual actions for the whales. And I love how that translates so well and how um, pertinent and, and current the, the research is. And one of the things I really like to think, I mean, it's it's obviously discouraging when you hear about a whale die or get entangled or hit by a boat and you feel like it's almost a personal affront like it was your fault almost in a way because you haven't yeah. been working hard enough. But I like to think that when we're out there 
doing like monitoring for whales, doing this research, you really never get to see as a scientist all the whales that don't get hit by a boat because of what you did, or they don't get entangled because your research told um, management to shut down this grid cell. And I like to think that that happens often and that those whales are out there having missed that, narrowly missed that uh, entanglement chance. And so that's what keeps me going when I have long days on Zoom calls and, you know, hours of data analysis. I like to say, okay, so it's for that one whale out there that, you know, won't get hit by a boat now. Yeah, it's kind of, it's nice to know, like, it kind of, it definitely makes you feel like you're making a difference. It can be hard mm-hmm. sometimes, I know, with research projects to, like, keep motivated through the whole way. Mm-hmm. So like, having this, like hey, we made a difference today. must be really nice to have. Right, right. And yeah, like I said, it's just so difficult when you don't see your, see whales on a day-to-day basis yeah. when you're sitting at your computer. Um, and so you don't get that satisfaction sometimes. Um, but it's important to keep keep on going. Literally, like not seeing whales throughout my like last year of university, I was like, do I want to <gasps> study whales? Like what? Like do I love right. them? And then I'd like see them and I'm like, yeah, never mind. I love them so much. Yes, but, right. What was I thinking? <laughs> of course. But I like do. going for a while without seeing them, it's kind of like, why do I care about this again? Like what? And then yeah. you see them and it changes. But like there is those like down periods of like what like why am I doing this? Why am I dedicating so much time to this? Right. Yes, I know. It's uh it's very different. Like I have friends who study birds and yeah, you see a bird almost every day, you look out the yeah. window. And they enjoy doing that because they, it's very easy to study their species. And, and it's, you know, you talk to people about birds and they all understand. But sometimes whales, there's this enigma, like they're just big, mysterious creatures that, you know, don't impact your everyday life. But they're still out there every day that you're out there doing their whale thing. And uh, it's important that we respect that our actions are still affecting their whale things. <laughs> It's weird to think about, like, right now, there's whales that are, like, existing. Right, or a whale that's like, I'm hungry, yeah. or, you know, or I'm cold. Let's go somewhere warmer. And I they're, like, know. migrating. <laughs> yeah. I want to know how many whales, like, at this very second are, like, at the surface. Like, I wish oh, there was yeah. a way you could know that. Satellites, maybe, someday. <laughs> we will know. Someday. Someday. Uh, yes. Yes. Well, yeah. Um, whale whisperers. That's a whole other project. <laughs> I love it. That's my um, my calling is I have a whale call that started out as a joke and then continued to work. So like, oh. I think I might be able to actually talk to whales. I don't know, still in the beginning yeah. stages of it, but like. Well, do you want to come to sea with us this summer? (laughs) Don't tempt me. I will. I'll I'll just like stow away on the boat and we'll be like, I don't remember inviting you. And I'll be like, yeah, that's because you didn't. I'm not here anyways. Or I'll just be like, yeah, she's with me. (laughs) Fine. We (laughs) talked about this. Yeah. (laughs) Did you not listen to the podcast, Kim? Come on. Right. Right. We had a plan. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. That's Alright folks, so it is springtime and I don't know about you, but when spring hits around here and the sun starts shining and it starts getting a little warm out, I am in the mood to clean. Now I've always been one to just go buy my cleaning supplies at the store, grabbing like when I grab groceries or something, and I tend to grab whatever is the cheapest that will do the job. But 
it's always weighed heavily on my mind like man this is so much single-use plastic come on like do better but there's never any great alternatives so when i was scrolling on tiktok one day and i saw it's a vibe shop i was so excited with it's a vibe you get to save on plastic and money these cleaning products are plastic free affordable and so easy to use they come in these little tablets that you drop into some water I used an old Windox bottle that I was going to throw out, but it got a second chance at life. You drop it in, you shake it up and let it dissolve a little bit and boom, cleaning product. You can get a glass cleaner, a foaming hand soap, a bathroom cleaner, and an all-purpose cleaner. A pack of three of one of these costs $9 and the starter kit that contains all four cleaners is available for just $12. And as if that already isn't amazing, Water Women listeners get to save 20% on their purchases when they use the code WATERWOMEN. You can check out Isavibe at Isavibe Shop. That's I-S-A-V-I-B-E shop.com. And don't forget to use code WATERWOMEN when you purchase some products for 20% off. When you're out doing this, have you had any like really, really cool experiences or like any moments in the field that really just Mm -hmm. like stand out to you that you were like, yep, this is the coolest thing I could be doing with my life? Yeah. So, well, coincidentally, I've never seen a right whale. I don't know if you mentioned I have not seen one yet. I've been thinking about them for many years now and still have not seen one in person. Um, So this summer, I'm very hopeful to see one. And that will probably be probably be the like defining moment of this drone work but I will say last summer uh, when we went into the Bay of Fundy and flew over humpback whales there was something just so magical about seeing the whale come into the field of view because we have a live first person view of what the camera on the drone can see we have a remote controller with a monitor and it was just so neat seeing it come into view And I'd probably say the most special day was when we observed a whale that was kind of close to the boat and seemed a little small, but I, you know, had the drone hovering over this humpback whale. And I was looking at the live feed from the drone and going, what's that underneath it? It was another like white streak. And suddenly I realized it's another humpback whale that's like way bigger and we later were able to identify that it was a mom calf pair. And so then I proceeded to, to be able to watch the calf like dive underneath the mother and swim back and forth. And like, you know, at one point you can see its eye cause it rolled um, toward its mom. And that was just a really cool interaction to observe with the drone. That is so cool. And so special. Like mm-hmm. by the time we're at a really interesting place for certain things, like getting to see them feed here is unreal Mm -hmm. it's so cool but usually by the time that they get up here after like the breeding season they're kind of like okay mom whatever like leave Mm -hmm. me alone so to get (laughs) to see that pair that is Mm -hmm. so cool yeah that was it's something you know from boat you can see two whales kind of surfacing but the drone really allows you to see that underwater interaction that makes it so much more like personal in a way what you just see their intelligence yeah. so much more I think oh I love that I also <laughs> cannot believe you have never seen a right whale that is <laughs> right insane I was on a boat I did some uh, like a 
couple weeks in the Bay of Fundy during my master's to help with some basking shark tagging. And I remember my advisor was like, oh, I think that was a right whale. And I looked and there was like a splash. And I was like, I didn't see it. And then that was it. So I I still like to think that like, I still haven't officially seen one because that Uh, didn't count. Yeah. Yeah. I, the first day, like, this is how special this was to me is I remember the exact day I first saw my right. Oh, September 21st, 2019. I love that you have an anniversary of it. Yeah, (laughs) I do. Well, so people would come on the boat often and be Mm -hmm. like, Hey, like, we hear about right whales. And I was like, listen, like, I would love to see a right whale as much as you would probably. Like, don't get your hopes up. And I never said no, because you don't want to be like, yeah, no, you're not seeing that. (laughs) You never know. But one day, like this day, that 21st, we were on the boat and people Mm. were like, are we going to see a right whale? Pretty late in the season already. I was like, guys, Mm. like, listen. I want to see a right whale. If we see a right whale today, like I'm going to jump in the water. Like, like, so we're out there and they have a very distinct blow, right? Like this like, mm-hmm. blow. And I yes. see that and I'm like, no way, no way. No, no, absolutely not. And I like ran downstairs and I look at my captain and I was like, is that what I think it is? And he goes, yeah, it's a right whale. And I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. So I like run back upstairs and I look at people and people, I'm like shaking and people are like, what's up? And I'm like, so, so, so there's a right whale up ahead of us. Oh my gosh. I was in tears. And like, I, like, obviously when I'm on the boat, like I want customers or guests to get the best experience. So I'm like, Mm -hmm. I was like, stand in front of me. It's fine. And they like pushed me to the front. I was like in tears. I was like, oh my God, this is the best day of my life. Oh, (laughs) it was just like this unreal experience. Yeah. Now I'm, I, I'm telling my research team that, you know, don't expect me to fly a drone over a right whale when I first see it. Like I need a moment because otherwise it'll be just like yeah. tears coming out of my face trying to fly a drone. It's not the drone's just like sideways. Like, yes. Yeah. I'll be like, what? Drone? What? No. <laughs> but um, I just, I, I love that story because it just shows like, you know, yeah, we, we see dolphins and we see seals and even humpback whales. I don't want to say they're any less magical. You know, every you animal is magical. You take it for granted, though. Like, when yeah. you're seeing them often, you're like, oh. Yeah. Remember, we have this, like, running joke that I hate minky whales. Obviously, I don't hate <laughs> minky whales. You just see them all the time that I'm like, oh, it's it's a minky. Like, whatever. Right, right. Like, yes. I know, and they're very difficult to observe with the drone. We observed a few, but they're so fast and only at the surface for a short time. So it's like, oh, what what else? But um, I just also, with right whales, because there are only, you know, 356 left, yeah. to see just a handful of them is like a majority of the population. And the the science were, you know, the population models that people are calculating says that if we continue to kill more than one whale a year, they'll be extinct in 30 years. Like that's our lifetime. And to think that we might see a species and then tell, you know, our children or grandchildren, like I saw a right whale, but there are no more around. It's like, so it makes it very special to see them, but I am optimistic that we can turn things around for the whales too. That's why we have you. You're going to turn things oh, around for us. But also it. but also people like you who are like doing these kinds of, of educational podcasts and getting the word out. Like, I don't know, we scientists could just work amongst themselves and we would get nowhere without the people who spread the knowledge and, and ask the questions of from us and interpret them for other people. I think that's equally as important. I love presenting things like this in a way that's so digestible for like 
non-scientists, like mm. just people mm-hmm. who are doing anything other than science and for yes. them to have a way that they can like understand what's going on in the scientific world in a way that's like kind of a, in air quotes, like explain it to me like I'm five situation <laughs> uh-huh. makes it so much easier than like trying to read a scientific paper right. and being like, what the heck are you saying here? Yes. And it's so hard as a scientist to like be good at both of those things. Like you could be really good at, you know, writing a paper, but it can be very hard to translate that sometimes. And so having people like you who are really good at the communication, it's like, again, teamwork. So important. Absolutely makes the dream work. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. No, but definitely like seeing the right whale was so like important to me because I like people when I was on the boat, they were like, why is this so exciting for you? And I was like, I never thought I would see one of these in my lifetime. Like I thought by the time that I died, they would all be dead. So like, yeah, unreal. That's, that's really special. That's awesome. So if someone was listening to this podcast right now, as little, a young woman who wanted to be exactly like you and do what you're doing what would your advice to her be? First, it'd be like, you could do it. Like, absolutely. yes, this is totally possible. Um, my advice would, yeah, just having that confidence, first of all, and the yes. imagination and knowing that, you know, you don't have to pigeonhole yourself. You don't have to be a trainer. You don't have to be a vet. You can, there's so many different jobs. And I even tell friends who are like, um, business majors who are like, you know, I don't like business, but I'm good at it. But I really like marine biology, like marine biology needs business majors, too. So there are so many different um, ins into this field. And my other advice would be to like, get uh, get as much experience as you can early. I know that can be hard. There's a big conversation in the marine mammal world right now about the ethics of unpaid internships. Yeah. And that's a whole, you know, other podcast. But I think it's an important thing we we need to ask ourselves. And me being an aspiring future professor, I'd like to have my own lab. Like, I'm really going to start to think about, you know, what what kind of um, opportunities I want to offer to young students. Yeah. Um, And... I was I was very privileged to have some wonderful female role models when I was growing up. Whether they were science teachers, um, my people, members of my family, um, yeah, I just you know, I think seeking out other women who are doing things that you think are cool. I think we're all willing to share advice. Like I, I received so much mentorship that I'm now really eager to pay it forward. So when someone reaches out to me and says, how did you do what you do? Like, I'm happy to put them in touch with people or, or, you know, provide links to opportunities or um, I just think it's, you know, the more diverse people we can get involved in this field, the more resources we'll have to people who are interested in pursuing it in the future. Um, and yeah, I, I guess I'm very thankful to have had that background and always, it was never a doubt that like I couldn't do it because I knew that there were other women doing these kinds of things. So it's definitely really inspiring to see. And I kind of like the shift that's happening of it mm-hmm. being a very male dominated field to being like equal or if not even more female. based. Right. Yes. But I, like, like you said, like if there's someone that you look up to and you want to learn from them, Mm -hmm. I have said this a hundred times before, message them, shoot them Mm -hmm. a message, 
the amount of emails and like DMs I've sent that I'm like, these this is gonna land on empty ears and like what's the worst that can happen? They don't see it, okay. Mm-hmm. So what? Right. Best yes. case scenario, they're going to be like, absolutely, let's chat, let's sit down, let's talk. Right. And I will say like for every email you send, there are going to be a few that, um, you know, you just won't hear back because people, sometimes it's very hard. Some professors are very busy, but like be persistent and uh, don't, don't, just because someone doesn't answer you doesn't mean that you're not qualified or you're not valued. Um, it just means that they might be busy. And um, I always hope I'll be able to answer emails in a somewhat timely manner but sometimes they're out doing field work and doing cool things and don't have access to their email so like follow don't be afraid to follow up don't be afraid to like hunt people down at conferences um don't be afraid to just make a phone call I feel like that's a lost art is like calling people on the phone um but yeah when I I just don't give up when you're if you want to reach someone or if you want to enter this field there are lots of avenues to do that. Absolutely. Don't be afraid to be annoying. Send three yeah, emails yeah. If, if they've ignored the past two. Like, who who cares? Worst thing you're going to do is annoy them. Like, right. And like I said, it's no reflection. It shouldn't be a reflection on you if you don't hear back. Like, I know it's, it's hard for these principal investigators to balance the needs of their yeah. students versus prospective students. And um, so just, like I said, being persistent. Absolutely. Things have a funny way of working out. Like, yeah, there will be some labs you are interested in or jobs you're interested in where they're not hiring or whatnot. But um, staying on top of what's like the current research and volunteering when you can is really great. Um, Even uh, out of my master's at UNCW, I didn't have a job when I graduated. And I was like, why did I just go get a master's just to not get a job. And and so I taught a sea turtle summer camp. It was like the kids scuba went scuba diving and we um, visited a sea turtle hospital. And, you know, while that wasn't the research based job that I had envisioned coming out of my master's, it still taught me, you know, science communication, patience, (laughs) um, It, you know, the questions that some of the kids would ask, I was like, that's a really interesting, you know, research project, or it just gave another perspective. And and so even some of those tangential jobs, like, don't be afraid to, like, apply for something that's a little outside of what you want to do. Um, the path is often windy in marine mammal biology. You never, it's never a direct path. Absolutely. There's always some some pit stops here, some pauses, some, you know, something comes out of left field. And so just expect it's not going to be direct. Uh, it's no going to evolve. Line, yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And, and finally, if there's mm-hmm. anyone that wants to check you out on social media and follow along with the research that you're doing, is there anywhere so they can find you on that? Yes, so I have a Twitter and Instagram handle. It's Ubelina Gina. Now, people are like, what is that? <laughs> Where did you come up with that? I have to give a shout out to my friend AJ in Florida who like helped me come up with it. Or well, she came up with it. <laughs> and I was like, that's brilliant. You've just branded me. Um, so 
Uh, Eubelina is the scientific um, genus name for right whales, and it's spelled E-U-B-A-L-A-E-N-A, and then Gina is G-I-N-A, so all one word. Um, so Eubelina Gina um, is my Twitter and, and Instagram uh, accounts, and I do try to keep those um, I try to update those with adventures from the field, fun photos from our drone, questions for people when I don't know what I'm doing with certain aspects of my project. So uh, those are great ways to also learn about. I try to feature some of the other people in our lab and some of the cool research that's going on at UNB. So that would be a great way. Your Instagram is so fun to follow. The pictures oh. you share are so cool. Thank you. It, I, I have to credit the drone. Like the drone. It's also, I, I love, I used to work with dead animals, as I said, and certainly couldn't post as many photos of those animals as I can now of like live whales from drones. It's a much fun, more fun social media account now that I work with live animals. I love that. Those will all be tagged in the description as well on a, as well as on all of our social medias as well. Great. And I do want to mention that if you are interested in learning more about North Atlantic right whales, I suggest the the best source of up-to-date information is subscribing to the North Atlantic Right Whale Consortium's newsletter. And I believe it comes out quarterly and they provide updates on the status of the whales, births and deaths. Um, also, they do research highlights and talk about some of the legislation that's being updated or changed to support right whale conservation. So again, the North Atlantic Right Whale Consortium is a great source of information. And also, you can probably find links there to our pages. And, and uh, also, I want to shout out to Canadian Whale Institute if people are looking to donate to the people who are going out and trying to disentangled uh, to disentangle um, animals that are in fishing gear or, or uh, respond to animals that are reported dead. Uh, the Canadian Whale Institute is a great way to make a difference. Yes, they are absolutely fantastic. And all of mm -hmm. those will also be listed in the description as well as on our social media. Perfect. Gina, great. thank you for joining me today. It was absolutely so fun to have you on. I love talking whales and I love how much I learned today. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that you're interested in our research and you're so passionate about the whales. I think the more we spread that, it's contagious and, you know, um, people need to know what's happening with them and how they can help. And I think this is a great uh, venue to do that. So kudos, kudos to you as well. Oh, thank you. Yes. Thanks. So I just want to let people know that if you are in Atlantic Canada and you do see a marine mammal that is injured, sick, stranded, or possibly dead, do not intervene. Instead, call the Marine Animal Response Society. And that number is 1-866-567-6277. And these are trained volunteers and professionals who come out and will help the animals as best they can. Absolutely. I definitely think it could be tempting to like jump in and try and like cut the rope yourself, but uh, it's definitely a little, little yeah. bit of a risky move. Leave it to the professionals. Right. And having worked in Florida with manatees, unfortunately we had a lot of those cases where people would just take matters into their own hands. 
but it's both unsafe for you and the animal. And especially with entanglements, you really want to make sure that all the gear is removed and there's no infection. And stranded animals strand for a reason. You shouldn't push back a stranded animal because they're already suffering and uh, pushing them back might just prolong that suffering. And yeah, yeah, it's important to call. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Water Women podcast. I love sharing these stories with you and I love that you love to listen. Make sure if you like the podcast, you're leaving a review and liking and subscribing to the podcast. It really helps us out. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at Water Women Pod. You can also check out more from us, including quizzes, blog posts, and shop our site at waterwomenpodcast.ca. Thanks again for listening, and until next week, stay salty.